trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. No, seriously, I'm glad you can be a part of uh, today's truth-seeking expedition. It's a necessity if you're determined to think for yourself, and I'm guessing that's why you're here. All right, got a lot to cover today. Going to be talking a little bit about mass formation psychosis and how that fits in with a fourth-turning scenario. Also, a new turn of phrase. Wow, James Howard Kunstler, really, I, I uh, I think he outdid himself on this one. He calls it the end of reality consensus disorder. That is a great way of saying people are waking up. And that's good news. We'll talk about specifically for the COVID fear mongers, how the game is over. They've lost. Talk a little bit about uh, the uh, the rise of AI, what that's going to mean to writing. This is of particular interest to me since I do write on the side. That's that's one of my, my side gigs. And if you're if you're interested, and if we have time, we'll talk about to the debt ceiling, hypocrisy, and hysteria, according to Ron Paul, who knows a thing or two about how Congress operates. And frankly, I think the Babylon Bee called it best when their headline said, "Congress debates how to raise the theft ceiling," because that's really what it comes down to. But I want to start today with uh, <clears throat> let's start with an update on uh, Ammon Bundy's situation, and and I do this only because he sent out an, an update yesterday with some insights into the the court appearance that he made on Monday. Now, of course, you know, there was there was some intrigue in Idaho. He had sent a letter to various individuals, including the governor, including the prosecutors, including the uh, the CEO of St. Luke's, uh, the health care, and, uh, and others, <clears throat> including the judge, telling them, please, don't come against me anymore. You know, they're, they're very actively trying to destroy him. This update gives you some insight into the mindset of the people who are prosecuting Ammon ostensibly for trespassing and uh, then a civil suit that's also being pursued because uh, St. Luke's feels like he said things that weren't nice about us when they were kidnapping a baby uh, that was uh, not in any danger. So Ammon says that uh, he was scheduled for trial on Monday in the criminal case. And in that case, St. Luke's claimed to be a victim of his. And they said the state was prosecuting him with the potential of up to one year in jail and a $10,000 fine. Now, this was for going to St. Luke's Meridian Hospital, demanding that they give baby Cyrus back to his parents. He says, so I was arrested for trespassing on St. Luke's property. But he said, last Friday, St. Luke's and I had come to a a settlement agreement And on Monday morning's court hearing, that was just supposed to be procedural. But in a very rare turn of event, Judge Annie McDevitt, after hearing the details of the agreement, left the room for about 25 minutes. And when she came back, she immediately ruled she was not going to accept the agreement. Now, this is a judge who earlier had thrown the book at uh, Ammon, saying, you did not live up to your community service hours, you know, for a previous trespassing charge of uh, against him being in the state capitol. And sent him off to jail, you know, for, I think he used his community service hours when he was campaigning, running for governor, teaching people the proper role of government. Ooh, I can understand why she was so angry. Nevertheless, she claimed that the Idaho Victims Act was the reason 
She said she believed that St. Luke's, as the victim, was not really okay with the agreement, even though they had agreed to it, and that she had an obligation to try to satisfy St. Luke's Hospital with greater punishment. Now, St. Luke's had a lawyer from Holland and Hart law firm who then began to manipulate the entire proceeding. Hammond says it was amazing to witness. St. Luke's Hospital is the largest private employer in the state of Idaho. Holland and Hart is the, one of the largest law firms in the United, western United States. And they're both tied closely to Idaho's Governor Little, as well as uh, Scott Bedke, who I believe is the Speaker of the House. Now, he says, I would never have believed he was the Speaker of the House. Sorry. I never would have believed that they, the power that they hold over Idaho courts, Ammon says, unless I had witnessed what I did in that courtroom. Chris Top Miller, the state prosecutor, seemed upset as well. St. Luke's executives went back on the agreement that they had hammered out last week because either they communicated with the judge while she was out, which is illegal, by the way, or they saw that the judge had extreme contempt toward me and wanted to grasp the opportunity to go for blood. Mr. Top Miller, the state prosecutor, told Ammon the judge was going to do whatever St. Luke's wanted. Ultimately, St. Luke's and Holland and Hart wanted him in jail. He must go to jail. Well, to make a long story short, after going back and forth for about an hour and a half, Chris Top Miller and St. Luke's lawyer came to an agreement that, include, that included imposed jail time. Now, Ammon said, initially I rejected those offers and it finally came down to around 80 days suspended jail time and five days imposed jail time. With that as the proposed in agreement, he asked St. Luke's, are you going to stick with this agreement or go back on it, on it again? And St. Luke said, okay, we're in agreement. Then he informed Chris Topmiller, well, I actually have several days of credit for jail time when I was thrown in jail prior, and I have a right to use those days of credit. That would keep him from actually going to jail. However, when the St. Luke's people heard about his jail credit, they threw a fit, and they tried to go back on the agreement again, insisting that he go to jail no matter what. Ammon says the judge wanted me to agree to at least some imposed jail time, but I insisted that my credit days for jail were legal credits, that I had suffered the, these days in jail prior and had a right to use them. I also made it clear that if they would not accept the credits and try to impose jail time, well, then I was ready to go to trial. Chris Topmiller made the statement that, if, that settling this matter was negotiations and everybody has to give. Well, Judge McDevitt finally decided the days in jail weren't worth going to trial, and ruled that the agreement with the the credit for time served was final. <clears throat> that the objections of St. Luke, St. Luke's uh, lawyers, she ended the proceedings. Now, the judge was put in a position of exposure. Ammon says if she was to continue to give any more to St. Luke's, then her bias would have become more evident. She could see that St. Luke's executives were never going to be satisfied. They'd continue to go back on their agreements until he was in jail. He says, this is what uh, happens when three wolves fight about how they're going to eat a lamb. I mean, it does, does this not illustrate? Uh, again, if, if you don't understand the story of baby Cyrus, I would recommend go to peoplesrights.org. And even again, even if you just hate Ammon Bundy with the, the intensity of a thousand suns, you at least owe it to yourself, if you're, if you're honest, if you have an honest heart, to understand what was he thinking in going to, to stand up for this family. Now, Ammon says, look, I don't know if I would have prevailed in trial or not. He says, I, I'd like to think I would have, but it's always a very strong challenge to, to get the truth in front of the jury. But he says, I believe by faith that I would have succeeded. He says, for months he's been asking the Lord to let him know what is God's will in this matter. And ultimately, he says, I came to understand it. it didn't matter if I went to trial or not. I wasn't going to prove anything. 
that I should use this opportunity to extend an olive branch to my enemies. So he says, that's what I did. I don't believe St. Luke's and Holland and Hart accepted my token of peace because they were after blood. However, he says, I extended it to them as I believe God requires. Now this to me, that's okay. So that's the bad part. Okay. You know, people were gunning for Ammon Bundy. And by the way, I think he was absolutely justified in standing up for that baby. And, and whatever harm was caused, you know, from him standing up and causing a commotion, demanding that baby Cyrus be given back to his parents, was less than the harm of taking this breastfeeding infant away from his mother and subjecting him to medical kidnapping. I think Ammon makes a very strong case for this. Here's the good news, okay, if, if you're wondering, wow, what, what comes from all this? Well, the good news is when the court proceedings were over, Ammon says, I had a sweet woman insist that God had told her to pay all the fines imposed upon me. That was nearly $1,200. She told me not to reject her offer because it was from God. And then he says, just seconds after that, a tall man came up to me and asked if he could pay all of the fines imposed on me. And then after going down to the main floor of the courtroom, he said another woman stepped forward and made the very same offer. Now, as he was leaving the courthouse, Ammon says, I called my wife to inform her of what happened and to let her know that I was coming home one more time. She informed me that baby Cyrus's parents had just Venmoed us $1,200 to pay the imposed fines. There are some good people out there. And they're not just good people because, yes, they support Ammon Bundy, but I mean, they're good people because they recognize when someone is being unjustly accused, unjustly persecuted, and uh, amazing. And by the way, you know, for those who say, well, this lady says God told her to, to pay the fine. I don't doubt it. You know, I, I've just, I've seen stranger things happen. And then again, I'll just, I'm, I'm not trying to flex here, but I'll tell you, I was sitting in the courtroom five years ago when the judge dismissed the case with, pre- with prejudice against the Bundys. And it was clear to anyone who was a person of faith in that courtroom that they had been delivered by God, not by, you know, some miraculous legal argument, not by, you know, some kind of trickery. I never thought that that courtroom was a place where I would feel God's spirit, but uh, I did. And I know a lot of other people did as well that day. So there's the there's the latest update on the Ammon Bundy saga. Now, the uh, civil case continues. And this one remains to be seen as to how far will St. Luke's go? How far will those who are directing the lawyers hired by St. Luke's go? But it's pretty clear they really want to uh, destroy this guy. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. All right, ready to dive into the meat of uh, some of today's show. If you've been a listener to this program for any length of time, you know that uh, I'm I'm curious, in fact, maybe even a little bit enamored by forth-turning methodology as a, as a means of studying historical cycles. And uh, just to, to, to make it down and dirty and quick and simple, um, this nation, America, has been through fourth turning cycles before and they they roughly approximate the seasons of the year a fourth turning takes place with the winter it's a time of great change it's a time of great uncertainty nobody knows exactly what it's going to look like on the other side of 
of uh, the winter snows, the blizzard. There's every fourth turning has some kind of tumult or upheaval where often the future very much hangs in the balance. I'll give you the example of the uh, Revolutionary War and the founding period. There was no guarantee that the colonists were going to prevail. And as they went into that fourth-turning winter, there was no sense that, oh, yes, they've got this thing in the bag. But when the, when the snows receded and when springtime came, guess what? There was a brand-new country, fertile, green, full of promise. And on they went through the seasons. They, they went from that springtime into a summer of, of uh, expansion and, uh, and division in some ways. That's, that's where sectionalism kind of became... The, the norm, the North and the South began to polarize over the issue of slavery, among other things. And then came the fall, the unraveling, and then crisis, starting with the election of Abraham Lincoln and then the firing on Fort Sumter, and boom, they were into a fourth turning of their own, which uh, this, this war between the states and then the Reconstruction period constituted that fourth turning. And on the other side of it, things looked very different. Suddenly, we were not a confederated republic of states that uh, had their own sovereignty, but more of a national, top-down kind of government. Our federal government had essentially been transformed through Lincoln's War of Involuntary Union. By the way, I'm borrowing that phrase from, uh, from Lysander Spooner. That's, uh, that's a writer that more people really should be reading. But the cycle started over again. All right, westward expansion continued, the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, the growing industrialization, electricity, telephone, and so forth. America's international influence began to be felt. And uh, that period of uh, hope and happiness and, and you know, promise gave way to an unraveling. And uh, in, the, in the 1920s, especially 1929, boom, stock market crash, World War II. There's your next fourth turning. You can see these come on about an 80 to 100 year basis. Well, how long ago did World War II end? Hmm. You know, take, take, a, take a wild guess. We are on schedule for the latest fourth turning. We're in the middle of that fourth turning right now. And you can tell. Look around us. Look at what's happening. But interestingly enough... You can't predict what events are going to happen. Some of the things that are common in fourth-turning methodology, the things you will notice that happen during these times of, of uh, this changing of the seasons, typically there is civil unrest and the decay of civic institutions. Go ahead, take a look around. You see anything that looks like that? Yeah. There's also economic upheaval. Got plenty of that going on. And typically there is war. And I'm not talking about, oh, yeah, a little brush fire war here and there. There's usually very big time, you know, everything hangs in the balance kind of war. Again, the Revolutionary War, the war between the states, World War II. I know, that's it's, it's an unpleasant thought. Look at the world geopolitical situation, though, and tell me that, uh, that oh no, that's completely out of the realm of possibility. No, it's, it's being set up even as we speak. And I don't say that with any satisfaction of, say, told you. It's just, uh, this is the way it is. This is a gateway that uh, we are going to have to pass through like previous generations have passed through before us. So with that, setting that uh, foundation there, Jim Quinn is one of the best commentators that I have seen regarding the fourth turning. 
and laying it up against current events and, and connecting some of the dots. And, and this is not to say, you know, he's a prophet. He, he's just someone who's paying close attention and is very good at applying that fourth turning historical methodology to historical cycles. The article that you will find linked in today's show notes is titled 2023 fourth turning meets mass formation psychosis. Now that's a phrase that you've probably heard a time or two. I don't know that it's yet in such common usage that everybody immediately understands, but the idea is when enough people believe in something that they, they are actually disconnected from reality that's what a mass formation psychosis looks like. And he actually uh, has, he starts with a quote from Matthias Desmet from the Psychology of Totalitarianism. Four things need to exist or need to be in place if you want a large-scale mass phenomenon to emerge. The first is there needs to be a lot of socially isolated people, people who experience a lack of social bonds. The second one is that there needs to be a lot of people who experience a lack of sense-making in life. In other words, things are in a state of confusion, right? And the third and fourth conditions are there needs to be a lot of free-floating anxiety and a lot of free-floating psychological discontent. So meaning, anxiety, and discontent that's not connected to a specific representation. So it needs to be in mind without the people being able to connect, without them being able to connect it to something. If you have these four things, lack of social bonds, lack of sense-making, free-floating anxiety, and free-floating psychological discontent, then society is highly at risk for the emergence of mass phenomenon. Now, I want to contrast that with a quote from Strauss and Howe, who were the authors of The Fourth Turning, which, if you haven't read this book, you would find it worth the time and the effort involved to do so. It will change the way you look at history. No longer will timelines just be this linear line with a few dots or marks on it, okay, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this person was born, or whatever. You start to see that, oh, there's a pattern that emerges. Strauss and Howe said, try to unlearn the obsessive fear of death and the anxious quest for death avoidance that pervades linear thinking in nearly every modern society. The ancients knew that without periodic decay and death, nature cannot complete its full round of biological and social change. Without plant death, weeds would strangle the forest. Without human death, memories would never die and unbroken habits and customs would strangle civilization. Social institutions require no less. Just as floods replenish the soil and fires rejuvenate forests, a fourth turning clears out society's exhausted elements and creates an opportunity. Now, there's way too much in this article to to read the whole... In fact, it's a two-part article. So I would encourage you... Click on the link that I provide. This is part one of Fourth Turning Meets Mass Formation Psychosis. Part two can be found on theburningplatform.com. This is Jim Quinn's website. But he says, look, as this potentially historic year 2023 unfolds before us, we're confronted with a world drowning in unpayable debt. A global recession, depression is imminent. Raging inflation at twice the level reported by our overlords. Real unemployment at four times the level reported by government apparatchiks. A government completely devoid of honesty, integrity, or responsibility to its citizens. A society dictated by corruption, materialism, narcissism, and bereft of civic and personal responsibility. Globalist billionaires and their captured organizations. We're talking 
World Economic Forum, World Health Organization, NATO, CDC, FDA, FBI, CIA, DOJ, IRS, actively trying to rule the world through technological and biological means. And, of course, insane politicians, generals and bureaucrats pushing the world towards World War III using Ukraine and Taiwan as their trigger points. He says it's like living in the, in the twilight zone. And he's not wrong. Most of us have, have kind of a very strong sense of this is just surreal. And it's getting more surreal by the moment. So if you want a real no BS assessment of, okay, here's what's happening. Here's how you can be sure that, yes, we are in the midst of a fourth turning. I would recommend Jim Quinn's writings on this. He's really good about it. And he, you know, don't think it's all gloom and doom either. It's, he's optimistic, but, you know, you can't avoid the fact that we are going to have to pass through some difficult times. The choices we make will determine whether the outcome on the other side is good or bad. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hopefully I did not depress you too much in the last segment. I want you to know, it's, you know, talking about this stuff, it's like just telling scary stories around the campfire. Except the story that we're telling right now, you know, happens to be based in, uh, no, it, it really is happening. And for a lot of people, that's that's really tough. And it's it's hard to keep things in perspective sometimes and realize, okay, yep, there are some very challenging times coming on the world. And, and depending on your viewpoint, I mean, look, people who are uh, are people who are learned in the scriptures and who know, you know, a biblical prophecy, they recognize a lot of what's going on. It's not like this is a big secret. And, oh, somebody just discovered this. But there is a brighter future that's coming. And, and as, as tough as things are getting and have been, and I believe that they're going to get a lot tougher. I, I don't say that with, you know, fatalism, like, oh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just going to be awful. There are going to be some very difficult challenges ahead of us. I have no doubt of this. But I also have this, uh, I don't know how to describe it. I, just, I, just, I have this gut feeling that uh, in addition to those challenges, we are being handed incredible opportunities to become the best possible version of ourselves. The kind of the kind of version of ourselves that we could not become if everything just got easier and more comfortable, you know, as, as we moved ahead. Which, by the way, I would really prefer that uh, we take the easier and more comfortable route, but I don't think that's going to be an option. And I see wisdom, like divine wisdom, in some of the refining fires that we're going to have to go through as individuals, as societies, as cultures. I don't think this is, you know, an indication that God has turned his back on us and no longer loves us. I just think people who are, are people who have faith in God, I believe, are going to see more evidence of God in their lives than they ever have before. Things that will make many of the miracles in the Bible look tame by comparison. But I also believe that uh, in order to, to see and experience and recognize those things, we're going to have to be tested and tried in ways that uh, none of us have been tested yet. So I feel optimistic, but I also feel, you know, the weight of the challenge in front of us and, and trying to strike that balance. It's, it's tough. I want to warn people. I want to, you know, I want to shout it at the top of my voice. Hey, 
Brace yourself. Get ready. Get right with your creator. But at some point, I look like the guy wearing the sandwich board. The end is near. <laughs> the end is near. Ringing a bell walking down the street. So I don't know. Most days, I assume I'm probably just that, that crazy guy who's uh, talking about uh, the end times. But there are some really amazing things that are happening. And it's, it, it's wonderful to recognize what's going on and not be caught up and swept away in all of the false delusions. I've got a great article here from James Howard Kunstler. The End of Reality Consensus Disorder. Kunstler starts with a quote from Elgato Mallow on Substack, which, by the way, one of my favorite Substack accounts, uh, Elgato Mallow. The cat uh, always has something good to say. The quote says, we've quite literally outsourced the definition of reality to a small group of technocrats in nondescript offices whose names we'll never know and who self-selected for issue advocacy and whose interest likely diverged severely from those of we the people. Sounds about right. So Kunstler says the big annual World Economic Forum meetup concluded last week with a mighty, so what? As the world struggled with some success to get its mind right after years of relentless WEF-inspired psyops. Own nothing, eat bugs, great reset, yeah, right. He says these days fewer sovereign individuals believed their Schwabenklaus BS about the necessity of becoming menials for the fittest 0.1% of mankind who comprise the World Economic Forum's cabal of elite strategic partners. News reports pegged the attendance at Davos this year at a shocking mere half of invitees. Did the absentees quail at the risk of all being together in the same auditorium? What with all those drones and missiles available on the black market? Or could they just not find enough unvaccinated pilots to fly their private jets? By no strange coincidence, one of the World Economic Forum's most sadistic leadership implants, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand, dropped out of office the same week, declaring she had no gas left in the tank. Old George Orwell had a pretty keen eye for the arc of history, but it never occurred to him that Big Brother would turn out to be Big Sister. Ms. Ardern was the one who said of her regime, we will continue to be your single source of truth. Unless you hear it from us, it is not the truth. Remember that? Polls indicated her party would get thrashed in this year's parliamentary election. Next door and equally vaxxed to the max Australia, the government had to confess last week that the country had more COVID-19 deaths in the first half of January this year than in all of 2021. Europe is starting to emerge from its COVID coma. France especially, where disgruntled masses marched in the streets last week, evincing growing disgust with World Economic Forum poodle Emmanuel Macron. Germany, not so much. Is it possible they haven't learned anything from went on, what, what went on 1933 through 1945? Great Britain, a basket case of woke doublethink and economic tribulation, is crumbling over excess all-causes morality, mortality rather, and a public health officialdom addicted to lying. British doctors are in revolt against the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. That's the UK equivalent of the FDA. And he says a wake-up is underway in these sore-beset United States. It was no small thing, for instance, that former vaccine cheerleader Scott Adams, the podcaster of the Dilbert comic strip fame, admitted pretty forthrightly that he was wrong about all that. He said, the thing that the unvaxxed don't have to worry about is what I have to worry about. What happens with this vaccination five years from now? All my fancy analytics took me to a bad place. 
Elon Musk shocked the Twitterverse and beyond by confessing that he only took the vaccines because international travel for business required it. And his second shot was a near-death experience, while his cousin experienced myocarditis from it. Meanwhile, the UN issued a warning to him through a World Economic Forum mouthpiece. EU Commissioner for Values and Transparency, Vera Jourova, comply and regulate speech on the platform or else. Actually, she said, we have the rules which must be complied with, and otherwise there will be sanctions. I think the confidence has been weakened, and I had quite a high level of confidence when it comes to Twitter. I have to say that we worked with knowledgeable people, with layers, with sociologists who understood that they have to behave in some decent way, not to cause really big harm to society. Now, James Howard Kunstler says, uh, something tells me that Mr. Musk will invite these busybodies to take a flying you-know-what at a rolling donut. As the tweeter, Black Flag Expat, explained, Musk can simply set up all the server capacity outside of EU jurisdiction, UK, Andorra, Switzerland, Russia, and move all the data to those physical and virtual servers, then lay off all European employees and stop paying rent on all leases. Nice. That old rats-from-a-sinking-ship feeling emanates from the hazy region where Joe Biden dwells. Chief of Staff Ron Klain is handing over his duties to former COVID-19 czar Jeff Zients, who did such a swell job of keeping Americans mis- and disinformed through the heart of the vaccine campaign. January 2021 to April 2022. Every thread of the COVID-19 narrative promulgated by this ass and the sackums of the CDC and the FDA are shredded, proved not only to be lies, but deadly lies. Every angle of COVID policy was wrong and treasonously wrong. This is who will soon be ostensibly leading the country, since you can be sure that uh, JB, Joe Biden, is not. Nobody will believe a word that Jeff Zients utters. rather. The mainstream media is even turning against this coterie of evil nincompoops. The sociopathic political left and its international managers have lost control of the ball in this game. And Kunstler says they can insist on any sort of absurdity, but the people have stopped buying it. Resentment over all this is breaking out. Nobody wants any more boosters. The running dogs of official propaganda like Stephen Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel await their career executions. The years of reality consensus disorder draw to a close. The counter-revolution finally begins. And he links, by the way, to for those who aren't familiar with it, the, uh, the sketch that uh, Stephen Colbert did, the vaccine, dancing around with a bunch of guys dressed like hypodermic syringes. Yeah. Somebody made this point about uh, Jimmy Fallon and his song about the latest uh, COVID variant that he was doing. Oh, it was so catchy and, you know, talented guy. But both he and Stephen Colbert, as they're performing these outlandish things, which, you know, are there to support and, you know, to to bring some fun and a little pep to the narrative. They both kind of have the air of guys who are performing as someone off stage is pointing a rifle at them, forcing them to do so. I know some people might take satisfaction. Yeah, well, you know, their careers are going to come to an end and they've been played for fools. And, you know, some people might think, well, serves them right. I still think it's a tragedy. I think these are talented individuals who unfortunately made the decision to sell their souls in in a buyer's market and are ultimately going to have to pay the price for doing that. I mean, yeah, it's, it's tempting to want to gloat, well, serves them right. But it's still a tragedy, even when someone is crushed by the enormity of their own bad decisions. 
All right, we'll take a very quick break back for our final segment, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back. Want to give a quick shout out here to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and also Borelli.com. You can learn more by going to my website. Click on any of those sponsors. I bet you find something that you like. All right, let's talk a little bit about, again, we are waking up, or at least a number of people are waking up. It's not everybody. Some people are going to cling to the official narrative no matter what, looking for any reason to believe. It's almost like their identity has become inextricably attached to the narrative. But for those who are waking up, and, you know, Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, is a good example of this. I got to give the guy credit for for having the, the courage to give the mea culpa and say, okay, I blew it. I, uh, you know, I pushed the vaccines. I thought people were stupid, you know, for being hesitant. But now he has realized it's not stopping people from getting or sharing COVID. It appears there are complications. I think the last number I saw was something like one in 800 people had some kind of a negative reaction. I mean, that's that's pretty significant. Vaccines have been pulled from the market for, you know, a one in, in a million kind of, of reaction. But not this. For some reason, we are all supposed to take it. And the funny thing is there's still people pushing this. I've got a great article here from uh, the Brownstone Institute. And this isn't going to be good for good news for everybody, but for those of us who have worked to protect our freedom from the COVID fear mongers, it's encouraging to know that the game is over and they, the fear mongers, have lost. This is from Robert Blumen on the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org website. Great one to subscribe to, great one to check out on a regular basis. Solid information. Robert Blumen says, The Guardian on January 15th, 2023, published the most perfect view of new normal nostalgia that ever was or could be. This headline said, Coronavirus, people aren't taking this seriously. Experts say the U.S. COVID surge is big risk. An article by Melody Schreiber. Now, this piece may be studied as platonic as a platonic form. Nothing could be more per, nothing could more perfectly demonstrate the inability of COVID fear porn publishers to let go of the narrative. If the author didn't have her own website, he says I would have attributed the, attributed the piece to a, an instant of Chat GPT trained on every Guardian and News New York Times article from the past three years. I mean, the subheadline warns about fewer precautions, recent holidays, and subvariants have driven the rise, but boosters, masks, and other precautions are still effective. No, they're not. But, but people still cling to the narrative. Again, Robert Blumen says the writer employs every single discredited trope at least once. So he goes, I'm going to list a few of the best here. To cover them, I would have to quote the entire article, and that would violate the fair use doctrine. So he provides us with a tabular form with a quote alongside the trope that it's uh, derived from. Quote, in the fourth year of the pandemic, the trope is we are still in a pandemic. It will never end. Here's another one. Quote, this is one of the greatest surges of COVID cases in the entire pandemic, according to wastewater analysis of the virus. The trope here is the current wave is the worst wave ever. 
Here's another quote. COVID-19 is once again spreading across America and being driven by the recent holidays. You can probably already guess the trope for this one. Super spreader events and family gatherings. Here's another quote. The Omicron subvariants BQ1.1 and BQ1, as well as the quickly expanding XBB1.5, make up the majority of cases. The trope there is just when you thought we were over it, a new variant has emerged. Here's another quote. With XBB, there's such a significant transmission advantage that exposure is really risky. It's riskier now than it's ever been in terms of transmissibility, Sagal said. The trope? The new variant is more dangerous than previous variants. Here's another quote. The more the virus spreads, the more opportunities it has to evolve, potentially picking up mutations that make it easier to overcome immunity. The trope here is that the variants only get worse over time, never more mild. Here's another quote. The winter surge, which is once again putting pressure on health systems. Williams is worried hospitals are reaching maximum capacity. Health workers have experienced three years of burnout, disability, and death and some have needed to exit the workforce. Now, the trope here is that the healthcare system's under pressure. It'll probably collapse. People will be dying in the streets, unable to obtain care. Next quote. Despite the high rates of COVID spread, hospitalizations have not yet reached previous peaks seen in earlier in the pandemic, probably due to immunity. But that protection should not be taken for granted, he said, particularly, particularly because immunity wanes. So the trope here is natural immunity does not protect you. Even if you are immune, you should still get all the vaccines and boosters. Okay, here's, here's a classic one. The quote says, the severe cases we are seeing are probably at least somewhat avoidable if folks make sure that they stay updated on vaccination because that's still the safest way to gain immunity. Do we really need to spell it out? The trope here is vaccination stops the spread. Here's another quote. You're just fighting a lot of misinformation. The trope here is that everything you've read contrary to this narrative consists of lies by malevolent misinformation spreaders. Here's another quote. When Joe Biden declared the pandemic was over in September, he said it probably stalled public enthusiasm for the new booster. And here the trope is happy talk about the end of COVID is dangerous. Here's another quote. While, while vaccines are very important, the trope there being that all vaccine, all roads rather lead to vaccination. And another quote here in New Hampshire, nursing homes will not admit those that they feel that they cannot staff to care for, which I think is admirable. But the consequence is that the hospitals are jammed up. Hospitals that might release patients to care facilities for transitional or long-term care will see beds filled for longer. The trope in this case is the elderly in care homes are at risk. Next quote, the share for children under four roughly doubled in 2022. The trope, of course, is children are at risk. And finally, as Ray put it, when we could be wearing a mask, why aren't we? And the trope there, masks work to prevent respiratory viral transmission. Now, Robert Blumen says, my favorite part of the piece is yet because of poor messaging from officials, many people may not even realize the U.S. is experiencing a surge. He says, I'm one of those many people who didn't know this. A surge of what? A normal seasonal flu that makes people feel a bit under the weather for a week? A, a bad cold vid? We can celebrate our return to the old normal when an outbreak of seasonal virus is a concern to those who are infected or who care for a family member. All of society need not be thrust into a panic over such things. 
the more normal the world is, the better, the more resources, rather, those who are impacted will have to deal with their troubles. And the better will those who are not directly affected be able to support them. Robert Blumen says, as a software engineer, I note with amusement that the variant, or as I like to call them, the scariant names now have two periods. In a software release version, a version with a double dot is used for a minor bug fix release. So minor means that the release is not important enough for users to upgrade immediately. Perhaps the same thinking should be applied to the way that we handle the emergence of new viral variants. When Biden said that the pandemic is over, followed by, if you notice, no one's wearing masks, everybody seems to be in pretty good shape, that may have been his dementia inhibiting the filter that was supposed to kick in before he said something truthful. Biden only said the quiet part out loud. The public has put the panic phase in the rear view. Even Anthony Fauci made the incomprehensible statement that the pandemic isn't over, but we're out of the pandemic phase. Every statement like this is more toothpaste for the pandemic dead-enders to put back in the tube. The article bemoans the low acceptance rate of the booster vaccinations. We're told that the cases are avoidable if patients had sought additional injections. First thing, do we care about cases? Second thing, is it not true that COVID vaccines prevent infection? That could only be so if the failed claim of sterilizing immunity were valid. Vaccine advocates have walked back the earlier claims that one or any number of shots would prevent the recipient from getting infected. It was let out late in 2022 that the clinical trials did not even test for the ability of the drugs to stop transmission. So it's hard to believe that anyone can still say that after so many multiplying, multiply vaccinated and boosted public figures have still gotten COVID. Now, he includes a pretty interesting graph showing a financial bubble and a subsequent market crash that, uh, that goes along with this. But the good news is that the, the line is starting to come back up. So all these tropes, does anybody believe them anymore? This isn't really news. It's just this last gasp attempt to squeeze more juice out of a dehydrated lemon. These messages were potent fear generators two years ago, but with each use, the charge becomes weaker. Robert Blumen says the script has worn itself out. The tropes are now tired and ineffective. The fear pushers seem unaware that the message has lost its effect, but they still don't have anything else to offer. The tell is not that they publish articles like this. It's how much these pieces show that they don't know that the game is over and they have lost. Now, I'm hoping you found that encouraging. Maybe I'm the one who's delusional because I felt really encouraged after reading that. Again, you'll find a link to this in the show notes at my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Please consider subscribing to my show notes as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show.